Okay, Acts 5, 12 through 21, and then we'll go through 40 to 42. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they were even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at the least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Moving down to 40. And when they had called into the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. One more, one more. Okay. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. All right, all right. Good morning, church. So we're continuing in our sermon series on Acts this morning, uh, a, book where, a book about the things that Jesus continued to do after his resurrection and his ascension. And so last week we considered the story of Ananias and Sapphira, focusing on the push and pull of hypocrisy and generosity. We learned that hypocrisy kills the church and it kills us, while generosity is a sign that we've been given life by Christ and that and, and that, that is, what, is what leads to life. But this is still, the, the killing of Ananias and Sapphira is still a very hard text. I mean, God just straight up strikes two people dead for disobedience. And this is what, and this is, and this is the mindset that the church is in, in the middle of, in the middle of Acts 5, where, or where we find ourselves. We only read a portion of it, but that's the portion that frames and shapes the purpose of this passage. And that purpose is this, that we know what is worth suffering for. And so I'm, 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 I'm going to have three points for us this, this morning that are going to give us an idea of what the tone of this sermon is going to be. Point one you will suffer. Point two, you will be mocked. And point three, you will be vindicated. Point one, you will suffer. Point two, you will be mocked. Point three, you will be vindicated. So this might not be a shouting sermon. <laughs> At least it might not appear to be so, but it's show enough going to be a real one. So points one and two are accessible to everybody. Suffering and mocking is common to human experience. But that third one is not guaranteed for everyone. And what I mean by that is going to become clear shortly. 
And so in this narrative where, where the apostles are arrested and then released and then taken again and then released again, it's important for us to understand that a life that's shaped by the gospel is not going to be sunshine and rainbows. And we ought not expect it to be so. And, and, and when we're told to expect it to be so, we're being lied to. And so, the, and so this morning, we're going to need to explicitly tear down some of those lies. And so as I've said before, uh, in a way that uh, soon you guys are going to be comfortable with it, it's just biblical language, uh, when you're going into battle, what you've got to do is you've got to gird your loins. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So when we re-encounter the church, they've just witnessed this death, right? So God has just shown them that he doesn't play games, especially with the health and safety of his people. And they saw more signs than just the killing of Ananias and Sapphira. They saw miracles of healing. And so that's why we see in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So what this text is saying is that people outside of the church thought twice about affiliating for the sake of affiliating because they saw the weight of that affiliation. People didn't join for the sake of joining because they saw the weight of that joining. And so in a society, in a region, in, perhaps in a city, where it can be seen as socially beneficial to be a Christian, after all, everybody says that they are one, we can often be tempted to join a community just because it's the thing to do. But this text reminds us that when we join the people of God, it places us in proximity with the presence of God. And that presence is not a game. And yet this presence is a joyful presence, a presence that heals, a presence that comforts. And so people are added daily, men and women, powerful and the marginalized. People are healed, demons are exercised, and the Lord is present, real, felt, and worshipped. And what's the response of the high priests, of the religious authorities? Jealousy, envy. Why do they get all this attention? These are just some uneducated fishermen. We're the educated professionals. Why don't the people come to us? And so then they arrest the apostles and put them in public prison. And then very quickly in the, in the very next verse, deliverance comes. An angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and lets them out. They're not even in prison for a night. And so clearly what this means is that uh, this is God's intention for us, right? That, that the presence of healing in this narrative means that if I'm sick, if I suffer from chronic illness, then it's God's intention and his obligation to heal me, right? It's God's will that I be freed. It's God's will that I be healed. It's God's will that my suffering would cease, right? I think that this is something that we desperately want to be true. And I think we will often listen to folks that tell us that that's true. And so as an example, this is, a, this is a sentence that you'll find on many a church website around the, around the country. Um, and, this, and, and, and I put up this, this, this screenshot for us, to, for us to see it. So practical side note, if you ever visit a church, important first step, go to their website and take a look at their beliefs. Track it down. Sometimes it takes a little work. Sorry, it's, it's small. I'll read it, but don't worry. Um, take, take, a, take, a, take, a look, take a look at their beliefs, and we encourage you to do that for for mosaics. Slim and I are an open book. We'd be happy to talk to you about where we are theologically on issues, controversial and non-controversial. But here's the sentence. So uh, some, some, some belief statements will have a health and prosperity tab under which you will hear something that sounds like this. We believe that 
as part of Christ's work of salvation, it is the Father's will for believers to become whole, healthy, and successful in all areas of life. Spiritual, then you list some verses. Mental and emotional, list some verses. Physical, list some verses. Financial, list some verses. And so what's promised here? What's promised here is that it's God's will that you be spiritually whole, healthy, and successful, mentally and emotionally whole, healthy, successful, physically whole, healthy, successful, financially whole, healthy, successful. So let me be clear and begin by saying this. This is not a core value of Mosaic. And this is not something that we would affirm. Why, you might ask. God loves me. Of course he cares for me. Of course, he wants me to be successful. Well, let's think about the counter to this. If I'm not financially successful, if I'm not physically whole, whose fault is it? It's God's will that I be successful. And so if I'm not matching up with that, it's probably my fault. I probably don't have enough faith. And I've seen this play out in the minds and the hearts and the faces of Christians that I know and love, where they're told by pastors that God wants them to be healed, and then when it doesn't happen, they're told that they didn't pray hard enough or that they didn't believe enough. And so, and so, and so the first point of this sermon is kind of a downer, but it's biblical, and this, is, and, and, and this is the life that it's very clear that God has called us to. And that point is, you, if you are a follower of Christ, you will suffer. Not you might but you will. And I mean, if you're a human being, you're going to suffer. But becoming a Christian does not mean that all of your suffering ends. In fact, becoming a Christian unites you to Christ, but it also makes you a new enemy in the devil. And so, and so you're going to start experiencing attacks and temptations that you hadn't experienced before. Because, because when the Spirit works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, the, the devil's not going to like it. People aren't, go, aren't gonna like it. And when you start building your life around Christ and committing yourself to loving God and loving your neighbor, people aren't gonna be happy. They weren't happy when Christ did it. They weren't happy when his disciples did it. Why should they be happy when you do it? And this, this isn't just about people being upset that you're sharing the gospel. It, it, this is, it, because of who you are and who you represent, you're going to be a target. And that's scary, right? And one of the things that we see in this text is that the enemies of the gospel are persistent. The apostles are set free, and when the captain of the temple and the chief priests find out, they seek them out. So this exchange is important in verse, in verse 27, verses 27 to 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But, verse 29, beauty, this is the beauty in the center of, the, of this passage. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Y'all, this is, this is, this is gold. And this is, and this is the joy of the good news of Jesus Christ. The apostles weren't set free because they were uncomfortable. They were set free because they had work to do that they could only do if they were free. 
And if you're in Christ, the Lord has work for you to do where you are, whatever your situation. You might be in a job that doesn't appreciate you, and people might be telling you, oh, well, you need to leave that job and find a place where they'll affirm you, where they're, where they're going to pump you up, and all these kinds of things. Yeah, that might be the case, but it also might be the case that the Lord has some shaping of you to do where you are. It might be that, that God wants to shape you into the, kind of, in, 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 into the kind of person that can go to another job and be a beacon of the gospel even there. The Lord's will for you is not necessarily that you be whole, healthy, and successful. Those things are nice, but those things are fleeting. What is the will of God in your situation? Paul answers that question in writing to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Always and in every situation, it's God's will to sanctify you. It's his desire to do so, and he's going to do whatever it takes to do that. And here's the kicker. That's what we ought to want. Take a look at at Acts 5.20. Why are the apostles freed? Look at the words that come from the angel of the Lord. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. In setting the apostles free, he says, go to the temple today so that you can get the folks who rise up early to go to the temple at daybreak to tell them this good news. You have work to do. You have the words of life, eternal life. And being isolated in this prison holds back the gospel, and so the Lord sets them free. And he doesn't set them free to go home and chill. He sets them free to cause more trouble and to be in more trouble. He doesn't set them free for their best life. He sets them free for a persecuted yet blessed life. And so after the apostles are freed and the authorities find out, they're obviously livid, right? And what do they say? We told you not to preach, and you're clearly preaching this Jesus, filling Jerusalem with this guy's name. And what's worse, you're making us look bad. And so Peter and the apostles could have said, hey, we're just trying to help people out. They could have said, hey, uh, why aren't we paying attention to the fact that, like, an angel just miraculously freed us out of prison? Like, that seems like a pretty big deal. Instead, something is much more important to them. There's a reality that's much more important than just them being freed from prison and just people, people being healed from various diseases and demons being exercised. That reality is that Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus is coming back. And so the apostles dismissed the protesting of the authorities with a simple claim in verse, in verse, in verse 29. Or verse, uh, verse, yeah, in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. And that is our mandate. That's our mandate. If there is conflict between what humans tell us and what God tells us in his word, it's not a competition. You authorities may not like us teaching in this name, but we're going to do so right in your face because this is our joy and we're going to shout it from the rooftops. And what is this joy? Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. The God of our fathers, the God whom you claim to serve, the God who promised us deliverance, the God who promised us new hearts, the God who promised us peace, the God who promised us joy, the God who promised us his very self, sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to bear the weight of human sin, 
to die on a cross to bring a people to himself, to die as a curse, because Deuteronomy tells us that everybody, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, to die in shame, in solidarity with a shameful and rebellious people, us, to, die, to, to suffer visibly, embarrassingly, and bodily. The Son of God, ruler of creation, took on flesh, took on the form of a servant. Why? To save. And if your Savior suffered, you are not above it. Was it the Father's will that Jesus be whole, healthy, and successful in all, in, in all areas of his life? Sure enough, didn't look that way. Not on the cross, it didn't. And the disciples didn't live that way either. Point one, you will suffer. Point two, you will be mocked. So we didn't, we didn't read this, but, 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 but a, a famous Pharisee, Gamaliel, shows up, shows up in, this, in this passage. And Gamaliel is the, is the teacher of a character that we're going to encounter, uh, who's going to be really important, whose name is Paul. So this is Paul's, this is Paul's teacher, very famous Pharisee. And so, when, so, he, so I'm going I'm to read Acts 5, 33 to 39 real quick. So when the authorities heard the gospel, basically, when they heard these things, the gospel, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. How many of y'all know that it's never good to be put outside in the middle of a meeting? <laughs> and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theldus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So Gamaliel kicks them out of the room to say some things that he doesn't want the apostles to hear because, this is important, because Gamaliel is not a friend of the gospel. So, so church, 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 tradition has, has, has actually told us that like after this, Gamaliel actually becomes a Christian, all this kind of stuff. But there's nothing in, there's nothing in this text that signifies that, that Gamaliel is a friend, is a friend of the gospel. As a matter of fact, when you, when you look at what Gamaliel says, he brings up these other Jewish revolutionaries to make a specific point. He says, basically, hey, we've dealt with this, with this kind of thing before. It'll fizzle out. Jesus is probably just like Theodos. Jesus is probably just like Judas the Galilean. We don't need to kill these guys. We can just let it fade into the background. They're not even worth our attention. Someone doesn't have to want to kill you to be your enemy. There are two types of enemies of the gospel. Those who hear it and respond in anger, and those who hear it and respond with indifference. And chances are that you, that you in your life, as you have sought to live a life of love of God and love of neighbor, that you've met both of these types of people. People who want to impede you and those who think that you're insignificant. People who think that you're a threat and people that think that you're just a gadfly to be swatted. But here's the problem. They think they're messing with a Theldus. They think they're messing with Judas the Galilean. 
But if you're in Christ, they're messing with Jesus. And the Lord doesn't play that. And so I know that some of you are in, are in work situations that are grinding and grating. Marriages where there's, where there's pain and there's, and, 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 and there's suffering there. And, 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 and you're constantly asking yourself, is it, is it worth it? Does God see me? Does he see my struggle? Does he see my suffering? And I, and, and I want us to look back at the Exodus when the people groaned under the yoke of Pharaoh and they cried out to the Lord and God did four things. He heard their groaning, he remembered his covenant, he saw his people, and he took notice of them. And so he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows, dear brother. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows, dear sister. Trouble don't last always, but your suffering may lead to your death, but it will not lead to your destruction. Suffering may lead to your death, but it will not lead to your destruction. And let me be clear when I say this, this is not a call for masochism or quietism. This is not a call to, rem to remain in, a, in abusive situations, that's not what we're saying here. This is not a go along to get along kind of attitude. It's imperative not optional, that we fight for the gospel and that we fight for justice. Now, right here, where we are. But there is no guarantee that we will win in our lifetime. And what separates us as the church from just some other group of like-minded individuals or whatever is that we know that our fight is not just rooted in the fact that other people are suffering. We fight because this is what Christ died to bring and it's what he's coming back to complete. Jesus Christ died and was raised to save us personally, to redeem us from our sin. He died and was raised to save us communally, to bring a people to himself. And he died and was raised to save us cosmically, to, save, to, to redeem the world order. And even when we fail, Jesus Christ, sure as heaven, does not. And will not. And that's the only way that we can finally understand the last three verses of this passage. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. After the apostles were waiting outside, they got pulled back in and quite frankly got the taste slapped out of their mouths. They may not have been killed, but they still got beat. Possibly the, the, the traditional 40, 40 lashes minus one. So you, you, we learn in Deuteronomy that um, any more than 40 lashes is disgraceful. Like, the person becomes disgraced. So what, so what became common practice was to err on the side of mercy and only beat somebody 39 times. So they got a merciful 39 lashes. I'll repeat point one, you will suffer. And yet they went out, wincing perhaps, limping maybe, but rejoicing. And rejoicing why? Rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name and they went right on disobeying the, the direct orders of the religious leaders. Why? Because to suffer for Christ is infinitely greater 
than to, than to prosper in the eyes of man. They were freed not to be quiet, not to be comfortable. God freed them so that they could be louder about God's love, his provision, and his salvation. And that call remains on us today, this day, brothers and sisters. Do you suffer? Has your faith in Christ caused people to misunderstand, hate, or ignore you? Has it led to your shame? Keep before your eyes the one who suffered indescribable shame. The creator of the universe reduced to a bleeding, quivering, wheezing mess, naked on a cross. Why? For his self-esteem? No, for you. And this shame, this suffering, is one of the ways that he binds you to himself. And so you will be stronger, more Christ-like for it, because when we are partakers with Christ in his suffering, we will be partakers with Christ in his glory. And that's the egregious nature of the prosperity gospel, that, that, that you get the glory without the fight. Jesus has won, yes, but the devil is still upset, and you won't escape that. But the final point of this sermon is true of you if you are in Christ, and that is that you will be vindicated. Now, if you're not in Christ, there is no guarantee that your suffering has meaning. The world's a screwed up place full of screwed up people, and sin does a lot of damage, and people will self-medicate through all kinds of means, drugs, alcohol, sex, many a vice. And apart from Christ, there really is no hope. Suffering has no end, only perhaps momentary mitigation. But to you, I say this is an invitation. Repent, believe in the gospel, come to Christ and you will no longer suffer alone. Christ has promised to bear it and to redeem you. And this is the only way that you will be free. This is the only way that you will be able to truly grow in your suffering. Because then your prayer in your suffering can be more than just, Lord, change my situation. It can be a prayer of, Lord, change me. Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me boldness. Lord, give me the, the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Because if your situation changes and you don't, then another situation will pop up that'll push you right back under. But if the Holy Spirit shapes you into the kind of person that can praise even in the prison, now that's something. Because whatever your pain, chronic illness, tough job, tough school, tough family, tough financial situation, none of that is eternal. It is hard. All of it is hard. That is pain. That is real. But what does have eternal consequences? That Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And because he was raised, you who put your faith in him will be too. You will be vindicated. That is our joy. That is our hope. That is what grounds and inspires and fuels our love. That pain does not get the final word. That abuse does not get the final word. That suffering does not get the final word. We might have some limps, but we will hold one another up and be ushered into the kingdom by his Holy Spirit whole. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.